Thanks for listening and sharing our body politic. As you know, we're new and creating the show with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcast on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. We're looking at racism in the tech industry and the links between white supremacist movements and the climate crisis. Ifoma Azoma spoke publicly last summer about the race and gender discrimination she says she experienced at the social media platform Pinterest. This year, she's advocating for an amendment to a California state law, the Silenced No More Act. Introduced early this month, the amendment broadens the discrimination categories that are protected for whistleblowers to break their non-disclosure agreements, and it could give workers new access to telling their stories, even if they've gotten a settlement. Now, Ifoma runs her own firm, Earthseed, which supports other whistleblowers in tech. Welcome, Ifoma. Thank you so much for having me. So I realize there's a lot of territory to cover, but just give us a brief summary of what happened to you at Pinterest. Yes. <laughs> so the brief summary um, requires giving a, a briefer summary of how I got to Pinterest. My entire career has been in tech and I started at Google in DC on the public policy team and then moved to Facebook in California. I worked on international issues, domestic policymakers from local to international. And I was recruited to Pinterest to be the second person on the public policy team in 2018, before the company went public in 2019. Two months after I started, I realized that I was being underpaid according to the leveling chart that the company had for the work that I was doing. At that point, I was managing all of our international relationships with organizations. I was managing all of our federal policymaking work as well as our state policymaking work. So I raised my concerns in writing with my manager as one is supposed to do. I raised them um, with HR. Things didn't go anywhere for months, months in which I was creating positive press for the company. The work that I was doing was proactive on a level that it was covered in the IPO press for the company. And it was reported as an example of Pinterest being a different kind of tech company. Pinterest is also considered a platform with great interest to women and also to people of color, correct? Exactly. One of the things that resonated so much with people when I shared my story last June was that the company was perfectly fine with having me be the face as a Black woman of the work we were doing internationally, the work that I was leading domestically, and the company benefited from having that image. It's a company that had, at the time that I was there, eight in 10 moms in the U.S. using the platform. And so there was very much a dissonance between who was actually in positions of power in the company and who was the face of the money-making arm of the company. And so in the end, how did they adjudicate or settle your complaint or did they? They did not exactly. Um, I decided to leave in uh, May of last year because 
the uh, amount of stress it had caused me. I remember in February of last year, right when COVID news was spreading, uh, I was actually representing the company at a conference at the National Academies of Sciences. And so I had this situation that I had to manage where I would be emailing my lawyer while then giving a talk about the work that I was leading at Pinterest. And it was causing a lot of stress to me physically and emotionally. And so I decided uh, to leave. What do you see, whether it's public awareness or shareholders or employees as paths to raise these questions more successfully? Well, I've said this a few times to other people. I don't believe in commitments. I believe in consequences. And I think that Mm. the shareholder lawsuits are one particularly viable uh, avenue to some sort of accountability because some of the settlements that have been reached have been large. Um, The same law firm that's representing the pension fund bringing a shareholder lawsuit against Pinterest uh, recently received, as far as what was disclosed, uh, an over $300 million settlement from Google. Uh, and all of that money was directed towards creating a racial equity fund. So I, do I think that has changed Google? No, as we've seen from Tim Neat's situation. That's that's Tim Neat Gebru, yes. who's a yeah, AI scientist who, depending on who you talk to, was fired or yes. resigned. Yeah. And so I think at the very least, uh, companies should have to pay for the harm that they're not only visiting upon employees, but the way that employees are treated very much reflects the way that the consumer base is treated. I What was fascinating to me after going public about Pinterest was hearing from so many Black women who used Pinterest about how they did not see themselves represented on the platform, even though the platform is clearly making tons of money off of them being users. And so some of the work that I'm doing now, and we can talk about this at a later time, is Oh, no, I want to talk oh. about it. That was my next question. <laughs> is in supporting whistleblowers. And let's talk a little bit more about this work with whistleblowers and then use that to talk more about your consulting firm that you've started, Earthseed. The work that I'm doing uh, through my consulting firm that's being supported financially by Omidyar Network is to help in two ways. The first way is in creating resource guides for tech workers. And when I say worker, I mean all tech workers, whether you're a gig worker, a contractor, you name it, you are a tech worker, um, is in providing uh, guides that cover issues like when to engage a lawyer, how to engage a lawyer, how to work with press, because being a source is different from being someone's client, Mm -hmm. how to protect yourself both on the information and physical security side. Uh, The second part of that work is in creating a fund that would provide monetary support for people who have been pushed out of their work due to whistleblowing and no longer Mm -hmm. have health insurance. And one of the things that I know would have kept me quiet and likely would have kept me at the company is if I had a family, I was supporting with my health insurance. Yep. So tell us about the Silence No More Act and what it means to you and how you're involved with it. 
I am so proud of the months of work uh, with Senator Connie Leva's team, uh, Equal Right Advocates, and uh, the California Employment Lawyers Association that led to its introduction um, on February 8th. This bill, if eventually passed by the California legislature and then signed by Governor Newsom, would bring protections to 40 million Californians and hopefully be adopted by other states. Um, And what the bill would do is amend a 2018 uh, law that uh, extended protections to those who signed NDAs and allowed them to speak up about their experiences with sexual harassment, sex discrimination, and sexual assault. Uh, What this bill does now is extend those protections to every single form of covered workplace harassment or discrimination that's recognized in California. So that means, you know, things like LGBTQ identity, race, age, disability. Is that what we're talking about? That's correct, Um, including veteran status, pregnancy status, mental health uh, uh, status, like everything that's covered under California law. And what this means essentially is that it takes away the tool that the powerful, both individuals like Harvey Weinstein and then corporations like Pinterest and Google, have used to silence people. Um, and it's something that it's incredibly personal to me because uh, I've experienced it myself, uh, whistleblowing about Pinterest. And many people who I know have been placed in positions where the harm done to them after being discriminated against or harassed or abused in the workplace is then compounded by forcing their silence. Mm. How do you think that this could change the game in terms of achieving equity in tech? I I believe this is going to be, well, since it'll apply to all 40 million people who live in California, this will bring accountability not just to tech, but to every sector, including journalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, NDAs are used often to keep people from uh, facing accountability, whether it's executives or managers or whoever else has been the one um, who has harassed or discriminated against an employee. And what this does, it's take that tool away. So do you want to see this go national? I do. I do. I I don't believe that we should have uh, 50 different laws and protections for employees. The pandemic has shown us uh, more than any other time that folks can work in one state and live in another. And so I think that these protections should exist for all 350 or 60 million Americans. Thanks, Ifoma. Thank you. That was Ifoma Azoma, founder and principal of consulting firm Earthseed. Each week, we ask listeners to call the Speak Line to tell us what's on your mind. Today, we want to know, what is one thing you learned about yourself in the pandemic that makes you happy? For me, it's learning about how to be in community with my mom. You know, uh, I've moved to spend more time with her, and she has so many fascinating stories from being in the Peace Corps in Morocco in the early 60s and living in Zambia. And so I've learned how much I love... um, listening to these stories and actually recording some of them at this point. 
To answer our question, you can call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or go to ourbodypolitik.show and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. When you're ready to speak, we're ready to listen. Stories like Ifoma Azoma's are bigger than what happened to one tech employee. The decisions technology and social media companies make have direct consequences on all of our daily lives. So we're continuing the conversation with Our Body Politic contributor Mutale Nkonde. She's CEO of AI for the People, a nonprofit that works to make sure artificial intelligence technology can be used for the social good. Hi, Mutale. Farai, so good to be with you again. So we just heard from Ifoma Azoma about how she wasn't treated equitably as a Black woman in tech. And what strikes you about that story and and you being immersed in the world of technology? um, How representative is it? Wow, Ifoma's story. Um, The thing that really strikes me is how ordinary her story is. I mean, years and years and years ago now, I had worked with a Google community partner and some of the issues that she describes in her case were evident even then. And I'm speaking 2015, 2016. Yeah. Um, what about Timnit Gebru? Um, how does her case impact the world of tech? An- another Black woman in a very high-profile case. Tell us about that one. So Timnit Gebru is one of the most significant re- researchers that looks into tech ethics. And she's really built a career at Google writing papers on these themes. And the thing that really stood out to me and really shocked me was she wasn't just fired from her job, it was done in a way that was extremely, extremely public. So the Timnit's case is actually very personally devastating to me. In my own work uh, with AI for the People, one of the one of our pillars of, of concentration is called race technology and the black body. And all our work on facial recognition is based on that paper that she co-wrote with Joy Bulawami in 2018. And for listeners who are not aware, that was the very first time that we learned that facial recognition did not recognize black people 40% of the time. And then a Mm -hmm. follow-up to say we were misgendered. Yeah. I mean, and and that may sound trivial to some people, but this is going to be a part of our identity, just like cell phones now are effectively part of our identity. Why, it, why does this matter? It matters to somebody like me because this idea about who is a person and who isn't a person actually dates back to the founding of our constitution where it was decided that Black people would be three-fifths of a person and then also not have the vote, which is one of the ultimate markers of citizenhood within a nation, right? And then with the misgendering piece, when we take that forward to think about Black women specifically, we still 
get to understand why in 2021, a researcher like Timnit is still being questioned. In her particular case, they were not just questioning the quality of her research work. They were ultimately, in the way that she was fired, absolutely undercutting her authority by emailing her reports before even telling her and telling her manager. And Mm. this is a company who, as recently as 2017, if you put Black people, Black people were being labeled as gorilla in the images search. And all of that is algorithms. Like, we hear that word a lot, but what is an algorithm? So an algorithm is the brain of a machine. That algorithm learns how to perform tasks by being fed data around how that task was performed in the past. So for the example that um, Timnit was referencing in her paper, the reason facial recognition was misidentifying Black people, misgendering Black women, where the way it was taught to recognize what is a human face is by looking at huge numbers of white faces, and specifically the faces of white men, and then creating statistical models based on the space between eyes, the circumference um, of the nose, and then a model was developed. And that's how you Mm. develop faces. If it's never seen a Black face, this is a machine. It's not a person. It's going to just misidentify or throw out the data set. Yeah. You had a situation recently where you had to deal with how people can weaponize technology um, after some of your disinformation research. Tell us about it if you can. Oh my God, I'm still recovering from that. So we had been doing research into a network um, who I'm not naming because I don't want to amplify them. That's like disinformation 101. Don't um, amplify the people that are perpetrating. But it's a Black network who... Uh, were really pushing the idea that Black people shouldn't vote in the presidential. And they had a specific campaign that they forwarded during the 2020 election, which was vote down ballot. And they're so media savvy, they had been able to go on CNN and repeat this. So Mm. these are people that you see in the New York Times, you see in the Washington Post, and they're very anti-immigrant. And they're extremely uh, judgmental of the way Black people live. It's a lot of the same rhetoric that you were hearing from the then Trump administration. And that made us very suspicious to whether these people were actually Black. And if if they had a Black front, who's actually running this? So we built a data set of 3.5 million tweets. We analyzed it. The paper's released. We tweet it out. And immediately, one of my co-authors has 600 accounts swarm her. She then starts to get threats. New accounts are being developed to get threats. I was being threatened, but to a much, much lesser extent. And in our report, which was in the Harvard Misinformation Review, we -hmm. made the case that white supremacy is an ideology. And as newsrooms are looking at Oath Keepers and Proud Boys as they so should rightly. They also need to look at Black or seemingly Black groups that promote disinformation. So Mm -hmm. 
ignoring Black stories and not having an editorial class that can pick up on this is, in my opinion, a national security threat. We're going to have to leave it there for now, but thank you for doing what you do, Matale. Fry, thank you for inviting me on. And to everybody out there, it's so great to hang out with you all. That was Mutale Nkande, CEO of AI for the People. White nationalist movements have an impact on parts of society most of us don't think of, including how we address the climate crisis. Mary Anais Hegler has been tracking this as part of her wide-ranging work as a climate justice writer. She's also the co-host and co-creator of the newsletter and podcast, Hot Take. Mary, welcome to Our Body Politic. Thank you for having me. So Mary, I want to ask about eco-fascism. Tell us first of all what it is and why also it's such an important narrative right now as we're still processing the siege of the Capitol. Ecofascism is basically environmentalism, but fascist. Um, so it is generally tied to white nationalism because this is what happens when right wing, like extreme right wing people accept the climate science. All climate action is not necessarily benevolent and is not necessarily going to take care of everyone. So you can see this crisis coming and say, shut the borders. We're going to have limited resources and those resources are going to be for me and mine and no one else. And that is a lot of what's happening. So uh, the El Paso shooting from 2019, the Christchurch shooting, um, I believe the same year out in um, New Zealand, both of those shooters had explicitly eco-fascist concerns. They were terrified about climate change and they were terrified of the immigrants coming to use up the resources Mm. that they saw as dwindling and that they saw belonging to them. And so I think a lot about eco-fascism because even though I did not have the language for it, um, that was really the reason I was most drawn to climate change, if I'm being honest. Um, I think back to Hurricane Katrina, which I think was a very traumatizing event for this country, but especially traumatizing for Black people in this country. I was in Mississippi at the time, and I remember Mm -hmm. hearing about the militias basically running around New Orleans and hunting Black people for sport. You know, people will say, like, my biggest fear about climate change is how are we going to treat each other? My biggest fear about climate change is how are white people going to treat me? And so you are someone who also, in your podcast and in other places, really thinks about all of the different ways that ecology and the climate interact with other forms of social justice. And you did a piece in Rolling Stone about how the climate crisis was revealed to be a threat multiplier. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, so uh, scientists use that term threat multiplier to mean that it basically makes everything worse. Um, So if anything else already existed as a threat, um, now that threat is just going to get that much bigger. For example, um, COVID-19, right? Like that's already a threat. And then you put it into the mix with climate change in -hmm. the form of hurricanes where people can't socially distance. They have to go to shelters. They have to evacuate. Um, There's no way to do that in a socially distant manner. Now you have even more outbreaks of COVID-19 or wildfires, for example. Um, Another example that I think uh, we don't talk nearly enough about is prisons. Um, So prisons are already like a a, a giant threat, like people living there are extremely 
extremely vulnerable. Um, and then you put them into a position where they have extreme weather. Most prisons do not have air conditioning, even in Texas. We're getting to the point where we are going to see temperatures at which you can get heat stroke just by walking around outside. Now, put that into a humid indoor building with tons of people who are overcrowded on top of each other. The risk for loss of life is tremendous. Um, and, you know, I could go on with many other examples, but, you know, it, and that is why climate change hurts the most vulnerable people first, um, because those were the people who are already on the margins. So tell us about some of the ways that you observe what corporations and uh, people in power do around the climate and kind of clap back. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think um, I'm becoming known for doing this thing on social media where I basically cyber bully fossil fuel companies. Um, so I honestly, I just started doing that because I, um, I'm petty. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> You know, if it can't be petty, if it can't be fun, I don't want to do it. And there's no reason, like climate change is already sad enough, it's scary enough. If I'm going to fight it, I'm going to have some fun with it. Um, And if that includes me getting in Chevron's mentions and basically holding up a mirror to their face and being like, oh, you care about human rights? That's real cute because this is what you did in Nigeria. How do you explain that? Um, I mean, it's really just fun to expose them. Um, I think for a really long time, the climate crisis has been a story that we told incompletely. Like we told it without the villain, right? Like the, often the way we talked about climate change was that the villain and the victim were the same person. And that person was you. You created this mess because you didn't recycle enough. You don't have an electric vehicle. You don't have solar panels. You are the reason for your own suffering. And that's simply not true. There is a reason that this is happening, and there are people who are profiting off of it, and those are the fossil fuel companies and their trade groups and the politicians who benefit from that. It's a whole ecosystem, and that ecosystem is the one that needs to be destroyed, not the one that that we live in and depend on. Um, And so for that reason, BP and Shell and Chevron and all of those guys cannot just walk on Twitter without me having something to say about it. Um, Because they're usually pretending that there's something that they're not. They're usually pretending that they're part of the solution because they've got an algae farm somewhere or a hydro plant somewhere else. But the truth of the matter is that they're digging up oil in the Arctic and in Suriname and pretending that they're not doing it. So... I just want to ask a final question because we could keep going and hopefully you'll be able to come back and talk to us more. But what do you do to fill the well? I mean, I know people for whom the number one thing that keeps them really anxious is the climate. How do you refill your well given the kind of work you do? Um, You know, people often say that the biggest cure for climate grief, which is kind of what you're describing, like climate anxiety, climate depression, is climate action. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of halfway true. I do think that that's important. I think probably the best cure, though, is climate community. The reason it feels so incredibly overwhelming and crushing for people is that they think they're doing it alone. You know, reaching out and finding other people who are engaged in the same kind of work, facing the same kind of fear head on and talking about it openly 
is is has been really healing for me um and has kept mm-hmm. me going um and so that's why i'm really excited about the the blast in um climate podcast because it helps to normalize the conversation we don't know how to talk about this this has never happened before we barely even have the language for it um so we're going to have to learn how to cope with it and learn how to talk about it and learn how to incorporate it into our lives and find a way to keep going and that is no short order <laughs> Mary, just really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mary Anais Hegler is co-host of the podcast Hot Take. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Now it's time for our weekly political roundtable, Sippin' the Political Tea. Here to talk about all of this week's news, I'm joined by our body politic contributors, Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th, and Jess Morales-Riquetto, Civic Engagement Director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Welcome back, Jess. Hi, happy to be here. Aaron, another week in politics. Welcome back. Yeah, except for the second impeachment of the former president of the United States, but sure. Yep, exactly. So as I said, former President Trump had a second round of impeachment hearings this week. I want to hear from both of you about what struck you the most. Farai, what about you? You know, I'm going to make a very strange admission here. Maybe not strange, but I didn't watch the impeachment hearings because I catch feelings too. I am a battle-hardened political reporter, but I still can get really worked up over things. So I read about it. So when I talk about the video being the thing that struck me, I'm talking about all of the written descriptions of the video because I haven't watched it myself. I need to do some little prayer and meditation before I watch it um, just to center myself. But the descriptions of the video that were used in the Democratic case sound exquisitely done. And friends of mine who are television producers are like, who do they get to produce that? That stuff was amazing. So through the filter of a little bit of emotional distance, which I get from reading things in print versus watching them in video, I'm struck by how everyone is talking about the video. Yeah, listen, the the combination of uh, prosecution and production value is definitely something people were commenting on. I, I will say I did watch. I was uh, pretty much glued to my television, uh, the way my direct deposit is set up, but also you know, because <laughs> I, I am an American citizen. And, and, and you know, this was our, our democracy on display yet again. I, I think watching it, especially day two of, of the impeachment trial, what I was most struck by was just the idea that that laying out the case and the way that it was laid out, uh, seeing that video footage in its totality, uh, it was uh, a really compelling video that that uh, certainly was hard for me to look away from and and to see it all together, you know, because there has been so much reporting kind of in the wake of of January 6th, but to pull it all together in the way that they did, uh, I think, you know, was important uh, for the public to, to have that on record. And you know, when we're talking about, you know, kind of moving forward with a shared set of facts, 
right? I mean, in in terms of how do you get to, I guess, you know, President Biden and, and Vice President Harris's goal of unity and healing. Uh, you know, so many people are saying that does not happen without accountability and acknowledgement. I think this trial uh, says as much about the American people as it does about the Senate's decision. Uh, Jess, what about you? Can I bring up something that I feel like is really important that is a little bit outside of the extremely serious tenor that we just talked about. Is it Stacey Plaskett's cape? It is absolutely. Yes, do. We need to talk about this. The impeachment manager um, who is representing the Virgin Islands, and the first time ever that um, like a non-senator is doing that, um, and she literally wore a cape dress while she works to save our democracy the perfection so many claps. of that moment. It was it was fly. It was fly. I mean, you know, there's no other way to say it. It is def- it was definitely a I'm here to save democracy outfit <laughs> as well as a transitions to a, a tasteful virtual black tie event outfit. Because that's what <laughs> that's what we need these days. Well, listen, I mean, look, her sartorial choices were definitely not lost on Twitter. So uh, I, I don't see how we can't mention that, right? Well, I kind of love it, too, because I do feel like it's a little bit of like, fashion diplomacy or fashion that's sending a message like you you don't wear the literal cape dress if you're not trying to like actually be sort of like using your clothing to like make a statement and I feel like that's such an interesting development that's been happening as you have you know a sort of unprecedented amount of female elected officials and that's really exciting because I think that we'll start to see more of that coming through and those end up being some of the most kind of enduring images of these moments. So uh, I want to move on to Democratic Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who began the second day of impeachment hearings with this argument. Let's listen to a clip. A January exception. It's an invitation to the president to take his best shot at anything he may want to do on his way out the door, including using violent means to lock that door, to hang on to the Oval Office at all costs, and to block the peaceful transfer of power. So what about this January exception? What are the consequences for the Republican Party, Farai? We don't know yet. That's the short answer. You know, I was just reading an article that Ann Coulter wrote on her own site, annecoulter.com, called My Nation Unifying Impeachment Solution. And so basically she says Republicans could trade impeachment for the border wall, which obviously, you know, but it's it's interesting that one was interesting to me as one of the articles written during the impeachment trial because I think Republicans are bargaining with Republicans over the soul of the Republican Party. There is a lot of internal introspection that most of us are not privy to in terms of what the lawmakers were and are thinking. And I don't think the Republican Party yet has decided what kind of party it wants to be. What's interesting is that as America becomes more racially diverse, the Republicans will not be able to win without supporters of color. But there is that whole strand of what some people are calling uh, American nationalism or uh, the browning of white supremacy. And there are people who may go along um, from communities of color with a white nationalist framework for the Republican Party. So I I just don't think we know. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, What about the consequences for the Democratic Party, Jess? You know, you alluded to this earlier, Erin. Like, I think that we have this moment where 
the Democrats are trying to push forward on impeachment as a way of holding Trump accountable, but it is somewhat at odds with this like, unity message because the Republicans are, have not embraced this. So there's a real challenge that I think is in this new Congress that really is trying to move forward in the post-Trump era that is a Democratic trifecta across all branches of government. And they don't actually have the ability to probably do the first most important thing, you know, in a way that I think they would like. They go in, you know, they take a vote, it's done, it happens. Like, I don't think that their hearts are totally in this fight, which is a little disappointing. There are moments of you know, like real kind of heart and legislators sort of speaking to where we are, but most of it is not quite, you know, the the people on white horses working to save our democracy, which I think people kind of need in this moment, particularly after Trump and everyone around him has helped really sully what it looks like to be a leader in our country. So I think there's a lot of consequences for the Democratic Party, and I'm not totally sure that They've shown up quite the way that we need them to. Hmm. You know, I actually want to jump in here and ask about the relationship between President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. We did it. We did it, Joe. Okay, that's, of course, the clip of Vice President Harris congratulating Biden after the election in November. Which lives rent-free in my brain, by the way. Me too, Aaron, like constantly. <laughs> Seriously, every every time that she's standing behind him in a mask because he's signing an executive order like that is what I imagine her saying. Biden's been saying that she's pretty much an equal partner in the decision-making. I wonder if, you know, do you all think that he she actually is an equal partner? And how do you think that his previous term as a vice president kind of plays into this? Aaron, what do you make of that? Well, Jess, I think, uh, you know, President Biden definitely said when he was looking for, you know, his uh, governing partner, uh, his his then running mate, uh, you know, he said that he wanted a relationship not unlike the relationship that he had uh, with then President Obama, wanted them to be governing partners, uh, felt like um, President Obama was somebody who empowered him to do certain things, uh, you know, most notably the you know handling of the economic recovery uh, when they took office in 2008 and, and also uh, working to get um, the Affordable Care Act passed. And, and I think that you're starting to see, even in the early days of this administration taking shape, uh, her being involved, her being at the table, uh, you know, uh, Certainly, she's been at the table for for every one of these executive order signings, um, you know, when they are dealing with the response to the pandemic from both an economic and public health perspective. You're seeing, uh, you know, her at the table uh, in conversation with cabinet members, but also with, uh, you know, local leaders, with with mayors, with small business leaders across the country, uh, you know, really uh, echoing uh, the president's message and his his priorities. Uh, She uh, broke her first tie in the in the Senate in her role as president of the Senate uh, recently uh, dealing with budget reconciliation and also um, you know has been kind of instrumental in in trying to get this American rescue plan uh, across the finish line although you know some people took issue with uh, I guess how she is it, you know put pressure on uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin but yes she she absolutely seems to be involved in um, the governing uh, that is happening in the early days of, of this administration. And so if, if that bears out, she may um, indeed uh, prove to be the partner that, that she said that she wanted to be and that uh, President Biden said that she would be. 
So I want to talk more about what the Biden-Harris administration has been up to and and, uh, what you all make of the $1.9 trillion pandemic relief plan. Jess, let's start with you. You know, it's very exciting. Um, This is a really progressive plan. You know, I I wouldn't say anybody thinks about Joe Biden as the super progressive individual, but so far his legislation, I think, has been pretty progressive. Of course, the announcements of the immigration EOs and the big immigration bill, and then now this, which is, you know, his other big signature legislative push. So it's very exciting. It is much needed. Families need relief. They needed relief last year. We're almost a year out from having to kind of be in lockdown in our houses. So it's long, long overdue. And I think the fact that it is so large is really important. There's one big thing that I want to talk about that's not in there. Um, that's something that's really important to me, but I also think is, uh, you know, uh, the place where some of his early policies intersect, and that's immigration. Um, you know, there is very little for immigrant families, undocumented families and support here. And there's one uh, um, piece that has been a little bit controversial for some um, around giving children of immigrants with social security numbers uh, checks to make sure that they can get through the pandemic. Um, And so I think that there is a really big tension between this push that the Biden administration has done around a new immigration policy around reversing Trump's orders and then actually helping immigrant families in the relief package, particularly when you have a number of undocumented immigrants and immigrant families who are listed as essential workers during the pandemic and are literally responsible for keeping the country running and keeping people alive. That's a tension that they're really going to have to deal with. And if they don't, I think it could come off a little bit hollow as one of their big priorities. Yeah. Farai, what are your thoughts on the uh, on the pandemic relief plan? Well, I think it's actually an opportunity for Americans to think about what government does. Uh, in many other nations, um, particularly in Europe, but not limited to Europe, people get a lot for their taxes. They generally pay more than the U.S., but they get far more. Um, people in other nations are shocked by the bickering over these checks, which to them are amounts that they get per month um, and, and more. In Europe, for example, uh, there are programs of support for artists because musicians and and artists are part of the cultural heritage of a nation. It is part, cultural tourism, you know, is is so much of why people come to America. And yet right now, uh, people who normally are on Broadway um, in the, you know, smaller character roles are are really just desperate um, among many other types of professionals. And in many other nations, you would get monthly support replacing your income um, to a certain percentage. And so I think that this whole stimulus, you know, conversation will lead us to bigger conversations about what is the role of government? How do you support your citizens and residents? And even things like, what does it mean to own a home? You know, we have this, um, you know, billions of dollars for for back payment of rent, but what? How does how do we get home ownership to be something that's more common? So bigger conversations to come. So, you know, for us, speaking of, you know, what government's responsibility is to its citizens, uh, you know, the issue of voting rights, uh, I certainly I'm working in a newsroom named for the 19th Amendment uh, is is one that I'm focused on and, and, and wondering 
you know, what our democracy does uh, in response to what we saw uh, in the 2020 election with around issues of voter suppression. And so, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post where she says we need to act now to save our democracy. And I actually listened into a call that she uh, held recently with voting rights lawyer Mark Elias, where he and Abrams basically put Georgia Republicans on notice that any attempts to curtail voter access in the wake of the uh, record elections in that state are going to be met with legal action. So Jess, where do we start? Well, I think the most important thing to remember is that we have unprecedented momentum around voting rights, but these are voting rights reforms that we started trying to pass literally in 1965. So on one hand, like, thank goodness that day has finally come. And on the other hand, I think we have a lot of challenges in the voting rights space that are not going to be accomplished just by passing Um H.R. 1, which is the Voting Rights Act, um, you know, the the big voting rights package that is moving um, in Congress. At the same time, I think Stacey really hits it on the head in her um, op-ed in the Washington Post. You know, she talks about D.C. statehood. She talks about the John Lewis Voting Rights Amendment Act. She talks about ending the Senate filibuster. Key, key options for Um, how we actually have a modern democracy that meets the needs of its citizens and gives people the right to vote and really puts into place really permanent protections around the right to vote. There's one place where I have a slight note, which is around Puerto Rico. You know, there's been a lot of talk, um, probably more than I've ever heard in my 15 years in politics, about Puerto Rico and independence and Puerto Rican statehood. And I think it's just really important to say that that's a really nuanced conversation um, in the Puerto Rican community and that we should really listen deeply to Puerto Rican folks on and off the island about how they feel about this. Because I think that in our rush to you know, provide voting rights and create favorable conditions around voting, um, we may you know, go a little afar of where Puerto Ricans actually are on this question, which is a long and complicated history. Um, And I think educating ourselves about that is really important. I know for me, I'm definitely doing that and I'm learning a lot. Yeah, Jess, uh, Stacey Abrams also referenced uh, Puerto Rico independence as as part of what she wants to see happen in that op-ed that she wrote. Uh, Farai, let me turn to you about this too. What do we do? Well, what we do is listen to Stacey. So that's my full answer. That's the beginning, middle, and end of my answer. Yeah, well, I guess we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens. I'll tell you, in Georgia, uh, there is a StopStacy.org site that has popped up. So I think that they recognize uh, her as a continued threat to uh, folks' efforts to uh, suppress uh, voters in in the 21st century. Well, look, uh, so much tea, too little time. We're going to have to leave it there for now. But it was nice talking with you, Jess. So nice talking with you all. And it was nice to chat with you again, Farai. Always great to be here sipping the tea. I have coffee today, but I'll get back on plan next week. Caffeine is caffeine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. 
Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Sarah McClure, Cedric Wilson, and Kojin Tashiro. Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.